3: It's lovely here, Gran, just as you described it. Look at that view.
0: Yes. I love coming back this time of year. The mountains are beautiful, aren't they? I'm so glad you are able to come with me. Yes.
3: It's nice to see where you're from. Has it changed much?
0: Well, it hasn't, it hasn't. Much more traffic about. People moving out from Dublin, I suppose. But the old part of the village is the same. Just how I remember it. The old hotel there across the square, the old church, the small graveyard with the stone wall around it, and the wee bit of woodland down to the river. This is my village.
3: Why did you leave, Gran?
0: Ah, sure, half the country left. There was no work. The heart went out of this place when my mother died. And I only 21. My poor dad couldn't cope with just me and Siobhan left in the cottage. Do you still know some people around here? Few enough. They'd remember Siobhan more than me. Why? Because she never left. Pity. It's all she ever talked about. Leaving, seeing the world. She had so many plans. Every evening, I would walk from work, down the main street, and I'd see her, sitting on this church wall, just like you are now, sitting with Sean, planning her big future. Oh, t- Siobhan
4: look don't do that huh? shouldn't go creeping up to the graveyard like that you're late
2: I was testing you seeing how long you'd wait for me uh,
4: 40 minutes I'm sitting here huh? why are you so crude I mean, you're often cruel to me
2: I was only teasing Sean I got held up at the hotel a bunch of salesmen landed in and I had to stay on and serve them dinner but ones from England can't believe all the food in Ireland with them still rationed even though the war is over this past year there's great work to be had rebuilding in London, they say.
4: That's uh, How would you want to be going over there for? Well, you've got a grand job here in the hotel.
2: Hardly. Making beds and serving tables. Uh,
4: well, you've got me.
2: A farm labourer without two pennies to rub together. <sighs> Wearing the backside out of his pants, sitting on this wall every day waiting
4: uh, for me. I might be poor, Siobhan, but... You'll travel the world and never find anyone else to love you like I do.
2: Ah, Sean. Will we go down by the river?
4: Ah, I haven't the time. And you're after keeping me late. I have to get back for the milking.
2: The milking, the haymaking, the potato picking. We should take ourselves away from this place, I'm telling you, Sean. <laughs> Somewhere with a bit of jizz. One of those English salesmen was telling me about London. We could go. Get jobs. Proper jobs. And look,
5: you
4: know well I can't leave me mother. She needs looking after. I'm, I mean, I'm all she has. Why don't we settle down here, huh? I mean, you could move into our house. I mean, my mother would love that.
2: And play second fiddle to another woman in my own kitchen. Ah, look,
4: it wouldn't be like that.
2: Yes, it would. You'd have me an old woman before my time. I've seen nothing of the world. I've never even been to Dublin. I want more than that,
4: Sean. Yeah, well, don't I know it. Don't I know it. Look, listen. I better head. Will you meet me tomorrow?
2: I might, or I mightn't.
4: Hmm. Well, I'll be waiting here.
2: Will you take me to Dublin sometime? Uh,
4: If I had the money, you know I would. (laughs) Will I see you tomorrow?
2: You'll have to wait and see. Uh,
4: You always say that.
2: And have I left you waiting yet? There's Sarah. Come on! Sarah, wait for me!
3: Mum says you never
0: talked about your sister much. Yes, well, must be the Irish in me. Burying the past. It all caused quite a scandal. It's strange being back here especially with you. Me? You remind me of her. Oh, but she would have loved to hear of all your travels, your time in America. What happened to Siobhan, Gran? You see that hotel? That's where she worked, where she met him. Who? The salesman. He was from England. I don't know where or what he sold as he travelled around. Fancy car, hair slicked back. She was so young... Easily led.
6: So this is where you got to. You know, it's not as enjoyable eating your breakfast without a pretty girl waiting on you.
2: I needed some fresh air, mister.
6: You know, you want to be up in the mountains for fresh air. Why don't you come with me for a drive?
2: No, I have to meet someone later. Ah, a boy? That's my business.
6: Well, I hope he knows how lucky he is. I hope he brings you nice places in his car and buys you lunches in hotels and spoils you like a princess. So what does this lad of yours do, then?
2: Well, he's on the farm, but someday soon we're going to leave here and get jobs in England.
6: Well, you should. Let me bring you for a short spin up on the hills. Put colour in your cheeks. I'm harmless, I promise. No, I can't. Well, that's a pity. We could have gone on to Dublin for some lunch. Dublin? Just a spin. Come on.
4: Sarah. Sarah, is, is Siobhan here? Sean, you're drenched through. Come in. I stay outside, thank you. I'm so soaked I can get no wetter. She's
2: not here. We thought she was with you.
4: Two hours I waited, sitting on that wall with the with the whole village sniggering at me, huh? And not one of them telling me about your sister.
2: Telling you what? What has she
4: done? She tramped off in the car with some Englishman. Mrs Boyle said she was laughing and joking with him in the car. Said it all looked very cosy, huh? Everyone knew except me. I wasn't good enough for her.
2: I'm sure it's just some misunderstanding. Just idle gossip. I know she cares so much for you, Sean.
4: Well, she could be on the boat to England or in some cheap lodging house for all I know. She has ruined everything. Broke my heart. Broke my heart, and for that, I'll never forgive her.
2: Sean, I'm sure Siobhan wouldn't hurt you. She'd never go off with some stranger. Come in and wait for her.
4: No, tell her to keep away from me. And you would do wise to fetch your father. He's drunk again. Look, no, good night,
2: Sean. I wait, Sean.
0: Was she with the salesman all that time? She was walking home alone in the rain from the dark of the Devil's Glen, and she never said a word when she finally came through the door. I asked her nothing until she was ready to talk because she had the mother of all colds. Three days in bed with it, begging me to go and see Sean for her, because the news was that he was bad with pneumonia from the drenching he'd got.
3: Did you see him? Did you explain?
2: Oh, Siobhan. What? Tell me, did you talk to him? What is it, Sarah? Tell me. They wouldn't let me in. The priest was there. Family only, they said. He had breathing complications. He had no strength. (laughs) Oh, no. Please, not Sean. I'm so sorry. It's my fault. (laughs) He was waiting for me. Don't even think that, Siobhan. He should never have waited so long in the rain. Don't you see? He loved me. He'd have waited forever if I told him to. (laughs) I killed him.
0: That is his grave. So sad.
3: He was the same age as me.
0: It was a terrible thing. Naturally, Siobhan was inconsolable. At first, she cried uncontrollably... Then she went silent like she was scared, like someone else I couldn't see was in the room. And soon I couldn't keep her indoors because she was out night and noon, sitting by the grave. No one could reason with her.
2: Siobhan, come home. You'll catch your death sitting here, it's freezing. You mean death will catch me and punish me for what I did? You did nothing. He didn't die of pneumonia. He died because he saw who I was and lost the will to live. The doctor couldn't save him. While he was waiting, I had let that salesman talk his way into kissing me in his parked car. And I managed to fight off that man's hands and escape with him laughing at me like a child. It took hours to walk back, thinking of Sean waiting. Think of yourself now. He wouldn't want you to catch your death. He wouldn't want me at all. Of course he would. If he wants me, he'll come. A little thing like death wouldn't stand in his way. Siobhan. Sean is gone. He wouldn't go without me. His ghost is watching somewhere by the church wall, testing my love and patience to see if I'm willing to wait for him like he waited. Weeks now I've been waiting. Why won't he show himself? Right. That's it. You're coming home now. Let go of me. You're my sister and I'll not see you do this to yourself anymore.
0: I sat by Siobhan's bed all that night and watched her sleep. I barely heard the knock when a neighbour called to say my father was rowdy in the pub and if I didn't lure him home, the civic guards would be called to put him in the cells. Siobhan was sleeping so quiet I was sure it was all right to slip out Just for a few moments To cajole my father into taking my hand And coming home like a decent man
3: And when you came back, Siobhan was gone?
0: Yes I ran through the dark calling But part of me knew I'd not catch her She'd climbed this wall Passed through the headstones And ran to the river they found her body a mile downstream. Death by misadventure. That word has a dozen meanings. Over the years, many have claimed to have seen her ghost by the river. Some passerby spotting a young woman walking out from those trees, staring ahead as if looking into someone's face, with no sign of fear until she falls in and disappears. Others see nothing, but passing at night, they hear a splash of water. Where's her grave? It's beyond that far graveyard wall. The priest wouldn't let her be buried on consecrated ground, nor let me put up a stone for her. So I marked her grave with a mossy rock pulled from the river, one of the stepping stones that she always loved. Strangers sometimes see a girl skipping across the stones and think nothing of it until she stops in seeming midair, where that rock used to be and stares back at them until she disappears. Have you ever seen her, Gran? I felt her and feel her still. After Daddy died, I left home. I've seen the world. America, Australia, places she used to pin up magazine pictures of. I've come back here year after year and told her what they were like. But I'm too old to travel now. That's why I'm telling you. When I'm gone... Gran,
3: you've years to live yet.
0: When I'm gone, maybe every few years you'll come back. Tell her where you've been. Tell her about the world outside. I know you'll feel foolish sitting on this wall, talking. But she'll be listening, and hopefully I'll be alongside her, listening to...
7: Waiting War by Dermot Bulger, Luke Griffin played Sean, Alison McKenna, the granddaughter, Jodie O'Neill, Shavonne. Dawn Bradfield, Young Sarah, Doreen Keogh was Old Sarah, and Simon.
8: refuse to have this conversation again.
3: But, Father, please oh. listen. I want to marry him.
8: Marriage is not a simple whim. It's an altogether more complex business.
3: This is no whim, Father. I love Sir Ashurst. He is the man I want to marry. It's that simple.
8: It seems simple because you are little more than a girl, child. A proper marriage settlement involves gold and property. I
3: refuse to simply be sold to the highest bidder like some mare.
8: You do me an injustice, Emma. I think only of you. Since your poor mother died, your happiness and security have been my sole preoccupation.
3: All I want is to be free from this barricaded fort.
8: Ah, mercifully, you were too young to remember the months when this fort was besieged the hunger and disease during which your mother died. Four nights I kept a vigil beside her until I would have died myself that day. But I had a baby to think of. It was you who kept me going. I promised her I would always look after you. Her little flower, she called you. The day you were born, she had made me climb down from the ramparts and pick the white flowers she loved.
3: On the rocks.
8: The only flowers that grow in this forsaken place. She loved those flowers. She made a garland of your cradle.
3: Dearest father, you still think of me as a child, yet I am the age that she was when she married you. I will never stop being your daughter, but I long to be another man's wife. Sir Ashurst is the bravest officer under your command. You've often said he reminds you of your younger self.
8: He's a born soldier. That makes me fear for you. Your grandfather begged me to leave the army when I wed your mother. He had it in his gift to arrange a position for me as a courtier, preening around London in some way. You were made
3: to be an army colonel. The military is all I know, and all I desire is to be an officer's wife. Twice you have refused Sir Ashurst my hand. Soon he will receive his own command. But I long to leave here beside him. I long to see the world.
8: You will see danger. Ashurst has already been wounded. Twice. Be
3: honest, Father. Would you really want me to wed a coward who had never lifted more than a handkerchief to curtsy and snivel at court?
8: I've lost you, haven't I?
3: In all my life, I have never asked you for anything. I beg only one thing now, Father, my freedom.
6: At last we are alone, my sweet bride.
3: Will my father not miss us from the wedding feast, sir?
6: You are no longer Colonel Warrant's daughter. You are my wife, Lady Ashurst. Say it.
3: Lady Ashurst. (laughs) (laughs) How strange it feels. Oh, I'm so happy. Tonight I can walk along these battlements with you alone. No chaperone. (laughs) Why, I feel almost indecent.
6: (laughs) My love, we will be often alone from this night on. And in chambers where no chaperone would be appropriate.
3: I hope you will not misjudge my shyness and modesty for reluctance.
6: Trust me. Awaiting your father's permission these three years, I have learnt patience.
3: I trust your patience will be rewarded this very night. I love my father dearly, yet I confess that I will never feel free while we remain on this fort that he commands with such severity.
6: These are dangerous times. The Colonel may seem a hard taskmaster, but no soldier doubts that he is a fair one. They fear him, though. No man who follows orders need feel fear. My dearest Emma, from the first day I was stationed here, I knew you would one day be my bride.
3: Tonight your fellow officers are celebrating what you have acquired. (sighs)
6: Don't make yourself sound like a
3: possession. How can I not feel like one after watching you and my
6: father barter over every last gold piece? A good dowry is merely a means of showing that you're a lady of worth and standing. I asked for no more than your father felt it proper to give.
3: Can I ask for nothing in return?
6: (laughs) It's your wedding night, Lady Ashurst. Ask for anything your heart desires. Anything? Anything in my power. You see those rocks below this parapet, sir?
3: <laughs> what need of you for a slab of rock? Well, hopefully not for me to sleep on. Your bed will be soft this night, <laughs> and it will not be solitary. Look, beyond the rocks at that small patch of clay. You see? Uh-huh. The white flowers growing there. I see them.
6: What strange they grow there.
3: They possess a secret that makes them so precious to me.
6: Then I shall not rest until I lay them on the pillow of your bridal chamber.
3: Oh, Ashurst! Wait until daybreak. The moonlight is weak. It it was just a whim. It's too steep.
6: Please, Ashurst, you may fall. I've crossed steeper terrain in skirmishes with the native Irish. The wound in your leg is still not healed. The wound to my pride will be greater if you do not have them. Be careful. Five
4: minutes. Come on.
2: I know we're missing. The photographer is waiting. Come back. I'll ruin my dress,
4: Sean. Look, over here. Look, I just want a few minutes alone with you, Heather. I'm fed up with smiling for photographs and meeting and greeting elderly aunties. Look, (laughs) this is our day, and I just want to remember it.
2: Ah, Sean. Nothing could make it more perfect. Beautiful here, isn't it? We were right to choose this place. Hang on. Who was that?
4: Where? Up there, on the ramparts, a, a girl in a long white dress. She she just vanished. I didn't see anyone.
2: Maybe one of the guests, your Aunt Sally. She's been fairly knocking back the champagne no, all day. No, no, no,
4: no, no, She was young and she was running. I mean, where did she go? There's no way off that rampart. Look, maybe she's fallen. Sean! Look, I saw her. She looked scared. Who was wearing white at the wedding? Where are you going? Are you out of your mind? Look, I, I can't see anyone. It's just rocks. She's gone. What are you doing? I'm gonna climb over, see if I can see her. Sean, please, wait, we'll get help. Be careful. Halt. Who goes there? Oh, why Lady Emma, are you alone? She
6: is with me, Sentry. Return to your post. What are you doing outside the parapet, Sir Ashurst? <sighs> An errand of love. Trying to reach those flowers, but. I fear my leg may still be too weak. Maybe maybe I can be of service. No, no, I'm nearly there. I'm afraid my leg... Oh, Oh. please,
3: sir, give me your hand. The flowers are of no significance. Please, climb up.
6: Let me help. (sighs) Lady Ashurst, will you accept my bouquet through an intermediary?
3: Forget I asked for them,
6: please. Uh, Sentry... If you fetch them, you shall feel gold in your palm. But
4: I can't desert my post, sir. I mean, you know the Colonel's temper. Then
6: let me keep your watch. You do my task, and I will gladly do yours.
4: Very well, sir. Here, take my tunic, sir. The night is cold for sitting, and I cannot climb with it.
6: Thank you. It was a foolish request. Nonsense. They shall be your bridal garland. You're shivering, Lady Ashurst. Retire to our new chamber and I will keep the sentry's watch and shortly come to you bearing your secret flowers.
3: Thank you, my dearest <sighs> Ashurst. Put on the tunic in case you catch a chill and please make sure the sentry comes to no harm. Sean, there's no-one there. Please come back up here. It's
2: dangerous there.
0: He'll be fine.
2: Sorry. You scared the life clean out of me. <laughs>
0: I didn't mean to startle you, dear. I'm just locking up. Oh, the number of men I've seen climb those rocks over the years. Is he trying to pick flowers for you? Flowers? No. Why? Romantic young men always do. Climbing back up is when they always get scared. Maybe because they remember how long it took the century in the old story. Those flowers. The white ones, see? belonged to the bride of Charles Fort, 1677 it was. People still see her here often. See who? Lady Emma. You're the young couple getting married in the hotel, aren't you? Is that your bouquet? Yes. Beware of what you ask for on your wedding day. All Lady Emma wanted was flowers. Some claim that Lady Emma's father was alone when he made his rounds to check the sentries and others say the colonel was drunk and accompanied by revellers from the wedding. All agreed that the bridegroom must have drunk a lot himself to fall asleep, huddled in the shadows, with the sentry's tunic around
8: him. Is this your best defence against the Irish colonel? He's asleep or drunk. Let the sentry feel your boots. Here, feel my pistol! A sentry who falls asleep on duty here knows the penalty. Too easy, Colonel. I must maintain order. (laughs) Emma! What are you doing out here? Where's Ashurst?
3: What's happened?
8: Back to your chamber, child! There's no cause for alarm. That sentry was neglecting his duties. Sentry? Oh, no.
3: Oh, father, say you haven't shot him. Say the sentry has returned
8: with the flowers. He was asleep. We could have all been besieged this very night by his negligence. You know the punishment. No!
4: Oh, Ashurst, please, no.
8: She's raving, Colonel. Shall I fetch her husband? Yes, quickly, sir.
3: Ashurst, oh, my sweet! Sweet Ashurst!
8: Ashurst? That can't be Ashurst!
3: You've killed the man I loved!
8: You've killed me! What? How? There's a man climbing up the rocks. He's carrying something. Flowers. You just couldn't bear to
3: see me go free.
8: You never wanted
3: me to be happy. I hate this great fort and this country.
8: I hate you! Oh, my child, I thought he was... He... he he wore a tunic. Oh, Emma! Emma! Emma, wait! Emma, come down from there! I refuse to be your prisoner again.
3: Tonight I shall sleep with my husband! Emma!
2: Have you seen her ghost?
0: When this fort was manned... Children often talked of a young lady in white leaning over the cot at night or smiling at them from the end of passageways. Officers in her old room often saw a white figure walking through the wall where a door used to be.
3: Do you believe in her?
0: There are hundreds of ghosts, dear love. Scullery maids seduced and discarded by soldiers. Mothers who stole bread imprisoned in these dungeons. Oh. Pay no heed, love. Haven't you a young man head over heels in love with you? Look, he's safe now. Help him up.
4: John, take my hand. I, I had to make
0: sure nobody had fallen. I mean, I could have sworn I saw someone. And I'm sure you won't be the last to see her either. What do you mean? I think you should concern yourself with one bride at a time. Go back to your wedding, son, and enjoy your happiness.
2: Oh, Sean, look at you. You're so true. You could have been hurt. Come on, let's get back to the hotel.
4: I really did think I saw someone. Look, let's go back inside to everyone.
2: Yes. Wait, I need to do something.
4: What did you do that for? My sisters will kill you when they've no bouquet to catch.
2: I'm leaving it for a different bride. One who likes flowers. Goodbye, Emma.
7: In The Wedding Bouquet by Dermot Bolger, Emma was played by Alison McKenna, Warrender by John Hewitt, The Old Lady by Doreen Keogh, Heather was Jodie O'Neill, Aarhus, Simon Delaney, and Sean and the Century by Luke Griffin, and The Wedding Guest, David Kelly. The producer was Gemma McMullen. Now, Doreen Keogh, who you might remember as the neighbour Mary in the Royal Family, or, if you're as old as I am, Conceptor in Coronation Street, well, she will be back in tomorrow's tale, The Waiting Wall. She plays a grandmother who returns to the village she grew up in and relives the scandal and tragedy of her sister. This is BBC
1: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day!
5: Which of the world's wise acres, I wonder, was responsible for the aphorism that the best things in life are to be found at its edges? It's too vague, of course. So much depends on what you mean by best. And edges. Most of us prefer the central. It is safe. You know where you are. But amusing? Well, hardly. Quite so, as my friend Mr Bloom would have said... But then Mr. Bloom has now ventured over the borderline. He is, I imagine, interested in edges no longer. I've been reminded of him again, as if there were any need, by an advertisement in the Times. It announces that his house, Montresor, is for sale. This charming freehold residential property, thirty-eight acres, the matured grounds of unusual beauty, I don't deny it. But was it quite discreet to describe the house as... Imposing? A pair of slippers in my possession prompts this query. It is important in such matters to be clear and precise, and, alas, all I can say about Mr. Bloom can only be vague and inconclusive, as indeed he was. It was an afternoon in May. I'd been to see a friend who, after a long illness, was now creeping back into the world again. It is a relief to leave a sick room to breathe freely again after that stagnant atmosphere. I even found myself whistling as I climbed into my two-seater. I released the brake. She leapt to life. I felt adventurous. It would be miserably unenterprising to go back by the way I'd come. I would just chance my way home. Two or three miles further on, I caught my first glimpse of Mr. Bloom's house, of Montresor and the mere quiet, diffident looks of it brought me instantly to a standstill. Imposing. It must have been built around 1750, and at second sight was merely of pleasing proportions. To all appearance, it was vacant. High-grown trees towered around it, chiefly chestnuts. The sun had set, and a diffused light hung over the walls and roof. I had been debating whether to approach nearer on foot or to drive boldly in. I chose the second alternative, with a faint notion in my mind, perhaps that it would ensure me, if necessary, a speedier retreat. But then premonitions are apt to display themselves a little clearer in retrospect. Anyhow, if I had walked up to the house, that night would not have been spent with Mr. Bloom. But it looked harmless enough, and I drove under the chestnut trees to the entrance. I sat on in the car, idly surveying the scene. No notice whatever seemed to have been taken of my intrusion. So presently I got out, and mooned off to the end of the shallow stone vase terrace. Only a dense shrubbery beyond. I sighed and turned back. I came to the conclusion that the place was unoccupied. Indeed, my foot was actually on the step of the car, when, as if at a summons, I turned my head and discovered not only that the door was now open, but that a figure, Mr. Bloom's, was standing on the threshold. Mr. Bloom, a memorable figure. He was well over six feet in height. He was both stout and fat, and his clothes hung loosely upon him. A black morning coat and waistcoat, brown trousers and well-cut boots. His head was bald, but his face was bushily bearded. He was surveying me from under very powerful magnifying spectacles. "'Are you interested in my house?' he was saying. I made the lamest apologies, adding some trivial comment on the picturesqueness of the scene. But of this I am certain. The one thing uppermost in my mind, even at this stage in our brief acquaintance, was the desire not to continue it. Far from countenancing this inclination, however, Mr. Bloom was suggesting that I should come in, There was a suppressed eagerness in the eyes behind those glasses. And yet, even so, why should I have distrusted him? He pushed the door open. The glimpse within decided me. For the hall beyond was peculiarly attractive. It was panelled in light wood, the carving on its pilasters tinged with gilt. Empty it would have been a fascinating room, but just now it was grotesquely packed with old furniture. It might have been some antique dealer's interior prepared for a moonlight flit. But having thus enticed me in under his roof, Mr. Bloom rapidly motioned me on. At the dusky twist of the corridor I found him awaiting me, his hand on an inner door. This is a study, he informed me. One moment, though, I think I neglected to shut the outer door. Dimmed old Persian rugs lay on the floor. There was a large writing table. The immense armchairs were covered in vermilion Morocco leather, and the walls were lined with books. The lofty chimney-piece was surmounted by mouldings in plaster, some pagan scene. I was looking out of the long windows when Mr. Bloom reappeared. You are a lover of books, he was murmuring, and we were soon conversing amiably enough on the diversions of literature. At last I bluntly held out my hand, and in spite of his protestations, made my way out of the room. Mr. Bloom followed me, cooing his regrets that I could spare him no more time. The garden, my china. I persisted nevertheless, and myself opened the outer door, and there, in the twilight, sat my car. I had actually taken my seat in it, when I noticed that in a moment of absent-mindedness I must not only have locked the gears, but that the Yale gear key was missing. I searched my pockets, leapt out and searched them again, and not only in vain, but without the faintest recollection of having even touched the key. I turned to Mr. Bloom. He was watching my efforts with an almost paternal concern. I've mislaid the key. Is it of importance? It's the gear key, I snapped. She's fixed, immovable, useless. I wish to heaven I. Most vexatious, dear me. Do you think by any chance, Mr. Dash, you can have put it into your pocket? I stared at him. The suggestion was little short of imbecile, and yet he had evidently had the sagacity to look for my name on the license. "'Where's the nearest town?' I said. "'The nearest ah, oh, let me see. <laughs> Come in again. We must get a map.' I produced my own from the car, but only an owl could have read it in that light. There was no alternative. I followed Mr. Bloom into the house again, and on into his study— He lit a couple of candles and we sat at the writing table and examined the map. The position was ludicrous. Montresor was miles from the nearest village. (sighs) I folded my map and sat glooming. But why be disturbed, he entreated me. Why a misadventure? But of no importance, you will give me the pleasure of being my guest for the night. Say no more. I protested and once again began searching my pockets. "'Ah, I see what is in your mind. "'Think nothing of it. "'Yes, yes, yes, comforts, convenience curtailed. "'I agree, but my good housekeeper "'always prepares a meal sufficient for two. "'Mere habit, Mr. Dash. "'And I will forage for myself.' "'He beamed. "'As a matter of fact, I am preparing to leave,' he told me. "'As soon as it is convenient. "'Meanwhile I camp on the ground floor.' It amused my secretary, this system of picnicking, poor fellow. At least for a while. He came to a standstill on the threshold of the room into which he was leading me. Candles burned on the oak table set for our evening meal. I must explain, he was saying, that my secretary has left me. He's left me for good. He is dead. He glanced over his shoulder into the corridor. I miss him. "'On the other hand, we mustn't allow our personal feelings to interfere with the enjoyment "'of what I'm afraid is a lamentably modest little meal.' "'It was by no means a modest little meal. "'Our cold bouillon was followed by a pair of spring chickens, "'the white sauce on their breasts adorned with fragments of cucumber, truffle, and mushroom. "'There was an asparagus salad.' and neighbouring it were silver dishes of meringues and a wine jelly thickly clotted with cream. Champagne was our only wine. Between mouthfuls, Mr Bloom indulged in general conversation of the exclamatory order. It covered a pretty wide autobiographical field. He told me of his boyhood in Montresor. The estate had been in his family for two centuries. For some years he'd shared it with his three sisters, all now dead. By the time we'd set to work on some camembert cheese, Mr. Bloom's remarks about his secretary had become almost aggrieved. He was of indispensable use to me in my work. Indispensable. We differed in our views, of course. No human beings ever see perfectly eye to eye on such a topic. In a word, the occult. He laid his left hand on the table. "'We succeeded in attaining the most curious "'and interesting results from our little experiments. "'I could astonish you.' "'I tried in vain to welcome the suggestion. "'My own personal view,' he explained, "'is that his ill health was in no way due to these investigations. "'My secretary, Mr. Dash, was found dead in his bed. "'That is in his bedroom.' (laughs) "'Speaking for myself, I should prefer to go quickly when I have to go at all. "'You will agree, my dear sir, that to see eye to eye with an invalid for any protracted period is a strain. "'Not a happy youth, ever, but still meaning well. "'We shared the same interests. "'He had his own views, but was at times exceedingly obstinate about them.' He had little staying power. He refilled his glass. You know the general process, of course. And he forthwith embarked on a long and tedious discourse concerning the uses of the planchette, of automatic writing, table-tapping, and all the other paraphernalia of the spiritualistic sales. Nothing I could say or do, not even deliberate yawning, had the least effect on Mr. Bloom's fluency. Lung trouble appeared to have been the cause of his secretary's final resignation. But if the unfortunate young man had night after night been submitted to the experience I was now enduring, boredom alone would have accounted for it. The cascade of talk suddenly ended. Mr. Bloom fixed me in silence under his glasses. You yourself have possibly dabbled a little in my hobby? I had indeed. In my young days, my family had possessed an elderly female friend, a Miss Allgood. She was gaunt, loquacious, and affectionate, and she had a consuming interest in the other world. I hear her now, On the other side, my dear Charles, another plane, Charles. I used to go to tea with her occasionally, and she would bring out the little round table and the wine glass and the cardboard alphabet, and we would ask questions of the unseen and she would become flushed and excited while she urged me now to empty my mind and now to concentrate, and we enjoyed astonishing revelations. These spiritualistic answers to our cross-examination were at the same time so unintelligibly intelligent and yet so useless that I had been cured once and for all of the faintest interest in the other side. I explained this to Mr. Bloom, I don't say that you get nowhere, but my personal opinion is that the whole business is a silly and dangerous waste of time. His eyes never wavered. Quite so, but not exactly nowhere it may be. And then as I sat looking at him, his face went out, so to speak. It became vacant. The unspeculating eyes remained open, but he, Mr. Bloom was gone. And for perhaps two minutes I sat there in a solitude I do not covet to experience again, yet, as I realized even then, Mr. Bloom had succeeded in this miserable maneuver merely by a trick. The next instant his bluish eyes became occupied, and he looked at me with a leer of triumph. He gave me no time to reflect on this piece of buffoonery. So-so, He was informing me. Shut us up or shut us down. We are what we are. And what you've been saying, my dear Mr. Dash, amuses me. (laughs) Extraordinary. Most amusing. Quite so. Like a fool I mentioned, Miss Allgood. I see. A superannuated novice. You pay your money and you take your choice. Pooh. Banal. I hotly defended my old friend. Ah, indeed, an old maid. Have no fear, Mr. Dash. she is not on my visiting list. With that he took out his watch, a gold half-hunter. Now, let me see. Nine Hmm. o'clock. Just nine. We have a long evening before us. Believe me, I am exceedingly grateful for your company and regret that. I see you've already condoned an old man's foibles. There was something curiously aimless, even pathetic in the tone of that last remark. He rose from the table with one of the candlesticks in his hand. In his study, a dusky moonlight loomed beyond the windows. And now, Mr. Dash, your room. Where shall we be put? He stood looking at me. My secretary's now? But one has reluctances, perhaps. I myself sleep in here. He stepped across and drew aside a curtain hung between the bookcases. But there was not light enough to see beyond. The room, I propose, is also on this floor, so we should not, if need be, be far apart. Eh? What think we? Well, now, come this way. He led me out to a room along the corridor. It was a bed and a sitting-room combined, and its curtains and upholstery were of pale purple. The bed was in a corner by the window, and there again the dusky moonlight showed. This was the last place on earth. These walls, these colours, this bookcase, that table, which Mr. Bloom's secretary had set eyes on before setting out not to return. How's that, then? My host watched me. I mumbled my thanks. Capital, cried Mr. Bloom. Eureka, my only apprehension. Well, you know how sensitive people can be. I leave you reconciled then, my dear Mr. Dash. You you will find me in the study. He lit the candles on the writing table and withdrew. I took one of the candles and glanced at the books. They were chiefly of fiction and a little poetry. On the writing table were a couple more, and a black book, its cover-stamped diary, and on the flyleaf, S.S. Champneys. I turned to the last entry, dated just months before, just a few scribbled words. Not me, at any rate. Not me. But even if I could get away for... The ink was smudged, "'a mere scrap of handwriting, and that hasty smudge of ink. "'They resembled an incantation. "'I shut the book and turned away. "'To my astonishment, a log fire was burning handsomely in the grate "'when I returned to the study, "'and Mr. Bloom, having drawn up two of his voluminous armchairs in front of it, "'was now encased in one of them. "'I hope,' was his greeting, "'you found everything needful, Mr. Dash.' "'In the circumstances—not that you wouldn't find a complete trousseau in the wardrobe— "'my secretary, in fact, was inclined to the foppish. "'No blame, no blame. Fine feathers, Mr. Dash.' "'It is, thank heaven, an unusual experience to be compelled to spend an evening "'as the guest of a stranger one distrusts. "'Mr. Bloom did his best to make himself amusing. "'We discussed music and art. "'We talked of chance and dreams and disease and heredity— edged on to woman, and skated rapidly away. In the midst of a discourse on the progress of human thought, he suddenly inquired if I cared for the game of backgammon. And why not? Or solitaire, Mr. Dash, a grossly underestimated amusement. But all this badinage, these high spirits, were clearly an elaborate disguise. He was keeping it up to keep me up. And his attention was divided. One at least of those long, hairy ears was cocked in another direction. And at last the question that had been on my tongue most of the evening popped out almost inadvertently. I asked if he was expecting a visitor. At the moment his back was turned on me. He was rummaging in a cupboard for glasses to accompany the decanter of whiskey he had produced. His head turned slyly. A visitor? Here? Yeah? No. No. You amuse me. Callers? Oh, thank heaven, not so. You came, you saw, but you did not expect a welcome. The unworthy tenant of Montresor took you by surprise, confess it. And why not? What if you yourself were my looked-for visitor? What then? Yes, yes, I agree. I was on the watch, patiently, patiently. In due time, your charming little car appears at my gate. You pause, I say to myself, "Here he is, company at last, discussion, pow-wow, even controversy, perhaps. Why not? I step downstairs, and here we are. I assured Mr. Bloom that if it had not been for the loss of my key, I shouldn't have stayed five minutes. He chuckled. <laughs> Howard are we not forgetting that such little misadventures are merely part and parcel of the general plan? What general plan? Mr. Dash, pray let us no longer treat each other like witnesses in the witness box. Have a little whisky, pure malt, a tot. One of the few exasperating things about my poor secretary, Mr. Champneys, was his aversion to alcohol, his own word. Three hundred pounds a year, Mr. Dash, no less. And everything found. Soda water or Apollinaris? In sheer chagrin, I drank the stuff and rose to turn in. Not a bit of it. With covert glances at his watch, Mr. Bloom kept me there until it was long past midnight. And try as he might to conceal it, the disquietude that had peeped out earlier in the evening became more and more obvious. Once he raised his hand and openly sat listening. Tell me, Mr. Dash, was I deceived into thinking I heard a distant knocking? In a house as large as this, articles of some value, we read of violence. I inquired with clumsy irony if there would be anything remarkable in a knocking. Don't your friends from the other side ever volunteer a rap or two on their own account? A rap? or two? He echoed me blandly, but his lips trembled. I had had enough, and this time had my way. He accompanied me to the door of the study and held out his hand. If by any chance you should want anything in the night, you will remember where to find me. I'm in there, he pointed, and now our evening is at an end, but who knows? Never matter what must come, comes. At last I was free. I made my way to Mr. Champney's bedroom and locked the door. The one thing in my mind was relief at finding myself alone again. No talker has ever more completely exhausted me than Mr. Bloom. Half-dressed, I lay down on the bed, drew its purple quilt over me. After all, Mr. Bloom's secretary had not died in it and blew out my candle. I must have at once fallen asleep. And now, as if in a moment, I was awake again. Wide awake. Night had gone. The creeping grey dawn was at the window. I lay there, stiff and cold, eyeing the door. And then I heard the sound of voices at a distance. At that, a deadly chill came over me. I stepped soundlessly onto the floor, looked about me but in vain in the half-light for the coat I had been wearing the previous night and slipped on instead a pair of Mr. Champney's slippers and the silk dressing gown that hung on the door hook. In these I was not exactly myself but at any rate ready for action. I unlocked the door. The voices were more distinct now. One of them I fancied was Mr. Bloom's but there was a curious similarity between them. It might have been Mr. Bloom talking to himself. I listened, but could detect no words. And then the talking ceased. There came a thump, and then overhead the sound as of someone retreating towards me. Inaction is unnerving, and yet I hesitated, detesting the thought of meeting Mr. Bloom again. But that risk had to be taken. I tiptoed along the corridor and looked into his study. The curtain between the bookcases was drawn aside. I crossed the room and looked in. Beside a chair on which a black morning coat had been flung was a small bed, half covered by a rug, and standing next to it a familiar pair of boots. On a table lay the miscellaneous contents, obviously, of Mr. Bloom's pockets. The old gold watch, a notecase, a silver toothpick, a bunch of keys. I see them all, but I see even more distinctly a Yale key. Never until this moment had it occurred to me that Mr. Bloom himself might have been responsible for the loss of my key, that he had in fact purloined it. I stole nearer and examined it. Was this mine? I was uncertain. I I must risk it. The footsteps seemed now to be thumping down the stairs, and it was unmistakably his voice that I heard. Yes, yes, coming, coming! Well, I had no wish to meddle in any assignation. What, as I turned round, I was not prepared for was the spectacle of Mr. Bloom's bed. When I entered the room, I am certain that it had been empty. Not so now. The lower part was entirely flat, but on the pillow, the grey-flecked beard protruding over the turned-down sheet now showed what appeared to be the head of Mr. Bloom. It was a flawless facsimile. "'waxen, motionless. "'But it was not real. "'It was an hallucination. "'How induced is quite another matter, "'but it was inconceivably shocking. "'This house was not haunted. "'It was infested. "'Without another glance at the bed, "'I made my way as rapidly as possible to the door "'and broke into a run.' Just as I had left her the previous evening, my car stood awaiting me beneath the porch. My heart literally stood still as I inserted the key. But all was well. The first faint purring of the engine was accompanied by the sound of a window being flung open. It was above me and behind me. I turned my head and detected a greyish figure standing within the trees, but he too may have been pure illusion. When I blinked and looked again, he was gone, but the gabbling was increasing overhead.' "'In an instant I'd shot out from under the porch and was on my way down the drive, "'but to my utter confusion the gates at the end of it were heavily padlocked. "'I all but stripped the gears in my haste to retreat, "'and then, without so much as turning my head towards the house, "'I drove clean across the lawn. "'In five minutes I must have been nearly as many miles from Mr. Bloom's precincts. "'It was fortunate perhaps the day was so early.' Even the most phlegmatic of constables might look a little askance at a motorist desperately defying the speed limit in a purple dressing gown and red Morocco slippers. But I was innocent of robbery, for in exchange for these articles I had left behind a valuable jacket and a pair of leather shoes. I wonder what they'll fetch at the sale. I wonder if Mr. Bloom would have offered me Mr. Champney's £300 per annum if I had consented to stay. He was sorely in need, I'm afraid, of human company. "'but I ran away. "'Now it's too late to make amends. "'He has gone home, as we all shall, and taken his wages. "'And what troubles me is the thought of Miss Allgood. "'She dabbled her fingers in the obscure waters "'frequented by Mr. Bloom. "'I hate to think of the possibility of her meeting him. "'For whatever Mr. Bloom's company in his charming house "'may have consisted of and here edges in the obscure problem of what the creatures of our thoughts are made on. And quite apart, too, from Mr Bloom's character and effects, my chief quarrel with him was his scorn of my harmless old friend. I would like, if only I could, to warn her against him, those affectionate, saddened, hungry eyes.
7: Anthony Head was reading A Recluse by Walter de la Mer. The producer was Lawrence Jackson. And we'll have another ghost story by Walter de la Mer tomorrow when a man recalls the love affair he witnessed as a child and that will influence the rest of his life.
1: For the first seventh dimension of 2019, a sci-fi classic from Philip K. Dick. I
8: needed to find these androids, test them and retire them. What if they don't want to take the test? You're going to have to act dumb. Hundreds of people get tested every week at Standard. A lot of the tests
5: does not work and they pass, but I'm certain they're droids. Retire them anyway. All hellos.
1: It was about half past three on an August afternoon when I found myself looking down upon all hallows, and at first glimpse of it every vestige of fatigue passed away. Having at last reached the end of my journey, dust, heat, wind, having come limping out upon the green sea bluff beneath which lay its walls, I confess the actuality excelled my dreams of it. What most astonished me, perhaps, was the sense not of its age, but but its air of abandonment. It lay couched there as if in hiding in its narrow sea bay. No other roof, not even a chimney, was in sight, only the dark blue arch of the sky and that gaunt coast fading away into the haze of a west over which were already gathering the veils of sunset. I should have come earlier. The distance was of little account, but nine flinty hills in seven miles is certainly hard commons. Nope. I shall not forget that walk, or the conclusion of it, when all but dead beat, I stretched my aching limbs on the turf which crowned that last hill, and feasted my eyes on the cathedral. I continued for a while to watch all hallows, to spy upon it, and no less intently than a sentry, who not quite trusting his eyes, has seen a shape approaching in the dusk. Those gigantic statues, for example, which flank the base of the tower, images of angels and saints I had learnt from my guide-book. Only six of them could be visible from where I sat. And yet I found myself counting them again and again, for my first impression had been that seven were in view. But what folly to have been frittering time away at an hour when no doubt the cathedral would soon be closed! There was but one faint chance left of making an entry, and so at last I found my way into All Hallows, entering by a dwarfish side door with zigzag mouldings. There hung for corbel to its dripstone a curious leering face, its forked tongue out to give me welcome, and an appropriate one too for the figure I made. But once beneath that prodigious roof tree, the hush, the coolness, the unfathomable twilight drifted in on my small human consciousness. Except for the windows over my head, filtering with their stained glass the last radiance of the sun, there was but little visible colour and an economy of decoration. To the east, a dark wooden multitudinously figured rood screen shut off the choir and the high altar from the nave. I seemed to have exchanged one universal actuality for another, the burning world of nature, for this oasis of quiet. Twenty or thirty paces away, an old man was standing. To judge from the black and purple gown he wore, he was a verger. He had not realized, it seemed, that a visitor shared his solitude. He was listening. His head was craned forward, and as I watched, he raised his eyes and scanned the complete upper regions of the northern transept. He continued so long in the same position that I at last determined to break in on his reverie. At the sound of my footsteps, he turned. He resembled one of those old men whom Rembrandt delighted in drawing, the knotted hands, the black drooping eyebrows, the thin-lipped ecclesiastical mouth. White as a miller with dust, hot and draggled, I was hardly the kind of visitor that any self-respecting custodian would welcome, but he greeted me with every courtesy. I apologised for the lateness of my arrival. Until I caught sight of you, I, I hadn't ventured far, otherwise I might have found myself a prisoner for the night. The old man smiled. As a matter of fact, sir, the cathedral is closed to visitors at four. Services are not as frequent as they were. Visitors are rare, too. We are too far out of the hurly-burly to be much intruded on. Not that them who come to worship are intruders. Far from it. But most that come are mere sightseers. (laughs) Well... "'I cannot claim to be a regular church-goer,' I said. "'I am myself a mere sightseer, "'and yet even to sit here for a few minutes is to be reconciled.' "'Ah, reconciled, sir,' the old man repeated. "'I can well imagine it after a journey on such a day as this, "'but to live here is another matter. "'It must be desolate in winter.' "'We have our storm, sir,' "'he agreed. "'You'd be astonished at the power of the winds. "'I mustn't detain you,' I said. "'But you were saying that services are infrequent now. "'Why is that? "'Pray, don't think of keeping me, sir, "'but I was supposing you may have seen something "'that appeared in the newspapers. "'We lost our dean, Dean Pomfrey, last November.' "'I held my peace, and the old man, as if to make amends, "'asked me if I would care to see the building.' The light is smalling," he explained, but if we keep to the ground level, there will be a few minutes to spare, and we shall not be interrupted if we go quietly on our way. For the moment the reference eluded me. I could only thank him for the suggestion. I explained, too, that I had read of Dr. Pomfrey's illness. I, sir, a saint, if ever there was. But it's worse than illness, sir. It's oblivion he dropped his voice but sharing one's troubles is sometimes a relief you see sir i am myself and have been for twelve years now the dean's verger and our dean was a man who was all things to all men none of your apron and gaiter high and mightiness whatsoever sir and then that and to come on us without warning or at least without warning as could be taken as such. I followed his eyes into the darkening spaces above us. A light like tarnished silver lay over the soundest vaultings. You must understand, sir, the old man continued. The procession for divine service proceeds from the vestry, out under the rood screen, and into the chancel there. If you stand to the right, you will see the altar screen... Fourteenth century work, Bishop Robert de Beaufort, a unique example. But what I was saying is that when we proceed for the services, it has always been our custom to keep close together. Well, on that afternoon, I had turned as usual to bow Dr. Pomfrey into his stall, when I found to my consternation he wasn't there. The old gentleman had left the vestry with us, that I knew, and then not a vestige. I hurried back, thinking he must have been taken suddenly ill. And yet, sir, I was not surprised to find the vestry vacant. No, our beloved Dean was gone forever. He had been, the old man whispered the words, abducted, sir. Abducted? He was found, sir, late that night, sitting in a corner, weeping, a child. He didn't know us, sir didn't know me just simple harmless memory all gone if you will just follow me he whispered there's a little place where I make my ablutions that might be of service sir we could converse there better the old man turned and led the way with surprising celerity and came to a nail-studded door he opened it and admitted me into a recess under the central tower, whose only illumination was that of the ebbing dusk from within the cathedral. With trembling rheumatic fingers he lit a candle and pushed open another door. You will find a basin and a towel in there, sir. I entered. A print depicting the crucifixion was tacked to the wall, and beneath it stood a tin basin and jug on a stand. Never was water sweeter. I laved my face and hands and drank deep, my throat like a parched river course after a drought. When I returned, the old man was standing before the window. All Hallows, I might say, sir, is my second home. I have been here, boy and man, for fifty-five years. Dr. Pomfrey might be with us now in his own self, if only common caution had been observed.' now that the poor gentleman is gone beyond all that there is no hope of action left they meet and they have one expert then another down from london and i don't say they're not knowledgeable gentlemen but why not tell all why keep back what we know it's we sir and not the rest of the heedless world outside who are responsible and what i say is No power here or hereunder can take possession of a place while those inside have faith enough to keep them out. But once let that falter, the seas are in, and when I say no power, sir, I mean with all deference, even Satan himself. What is wrong here? I asked. Wrong, sir? Why? Why? "'I am not doubting that the gentlemen I have mentioned "'have the salvation of the cathedral at heart, "'but they refuse to see how close to the edge of things we are "'and how we are drifting. "'So far as my knowledge tells me, "'there is no sacred edifice in the kingdom of a peace, that is, "'with all hallows, that is so open, open, I mean, sir, "'to an attack of this terrifying nature.' "'Terrifying? Terrifying, sir!' Where else, may I ask, would you expect the powers of darkness to congregate in open besiegement than in this narrow valley? First, the sea out there. Are you aware, sir, that ever since living remembrance, flood tide has been gnawing its way into this bay to the extent of three or four feet per annum? And think of the floods and gales that fall upon us autumn and winter through. They make the roads well nigh impossible. Are you aware, sir, I continue, that as we stand now we are above a mile from the nearest human habitation? I warrant that if, and which God forbid, you had been shut up here during the night, and it was a near thing, but what you weren't, I warrant you might have shouted yourself dumb with not a human soul to help you. Well, I smiled. As a small boy, one of my particular fancies was to spend a night in a pulpit. But I take it, sir, if you had ventured to give out a text up there in the dark hours, your innocent young mind would not have been prepared for any kind of congregation. You mean this place is haunted? I mean, sir, that there are devilish agencies at work here. He raised his hand. Don't! I entreat you, dismiss what I am saying as the wandering of a foolish old man. I have heard them with these ears. I have seen them with these eyes. Though whether they have any positive substance, sir, is beyond my small knowledge. But of what they can do, I can give you definite evidences. But surely every old building is bound to show symptoms of decay. I must apologize, the old man interrupted me. I'm a poor mouth at explanation, sir. Decay, settling, dissolution. I have heard these words bandied from lip to lip, and they fill me with nausea. Why? I'm speaking not of dissolution, sir, but of repairs, restorations, not decay, strengthening, not a corroding loss, an awful progress. I could show you places, sir, where stones as rotten as pumice have been replaced by others fresh quarried, and nothing of their kind within miles. There are spots where massive blocks have been pushed into place by sheer force. All Hallows is safer at this moment than it has been for three hundred years." They meant well, them who came to see, full of fine talk, and went dumb away, but at heart, sir, They were cowed, horrified. He stood gazing through that narrow inward window. I have not spent sixty years in this place without paying heed to my own thoughts. Look at your newspaper, sir. What they call the Great War is over and he'd be a brave man who would take an oath before heaven that that was only of human designing and yet what do we see around us? Nothing but strife and juggleries and hatred wherever you look. And the church, sir. If you had told me that you were a regular churchman, I shouldn't be pouring out all this to you now. But being not so gives me confidence. By merely listening, you can help me, sir. Though you can't help us. You see, sir, he went on dejectedly, I can bear what may be to come. Tell me the worst, and you will have done an old man a service he can never repay. Tell me, on the other hand, that I am merely groping along in a network of devilish delusions, sir. Well, in that case, I hope to be with my master, with Dr. Pomfrey, as soon as possible. We were all children once. I sometimes find myself looking at a young child with little short of awe, sir, knowing that... Within its mind is a scene of peace and paradise of which we older folk have no notion and which will fade away out of it as life wears in. I was at a loss to answer him. The fact is, he looked cautiously about him, what I am now being so bold as to suggest may put you in physical danger. On the other hand, We can leave the building at once, if you are so minded. In any case, we must be gone before dark sets in. Even mere human beings are best not disturbed at any night work. Besides, I once delayed too long myself. Perhaps if I had been a little less credulous or less exhausted, I should have begun to doubt this old creature's sanity. But then there was all Hallows itself to take into account, Even now, in this remote candlelit room, the vast edifice seemed to be gently and furtively fretting its impression on my mind. I only wish I could be of any real help, I said. The old man's expression changed, as if at the coming of a light. Why then, sir, let's be gone at once. You are with me, sir. That was all I hoped and asked. Now there's no time to waste. He lowered his voice. What I would suggest, sir, if you've no objection, is your kindly grasping my gown. There will be a good deal of up and downing, but I know the building blindfold. He opened the door and blew out the light. We were instantly marooned in an impenetrable darkness, and we set out on our expedition. I clung, I confess, desperately tight to my lifeline as we groped onward. I found myself steadily ascending, and then in a while brushing along a gallery or corkscrewing up a new staircase. Once, to recover our breath, we paused opposite a slit in the masonry at which to breathe the tepid sweetness of the outer air, and I caught a glimpse of the night's first stars. We then turned inward once more, ascending. Dead still here, sir, if you please. There's a drop of some sixty feet a few paces on. As we approached the edge of this stony precipice, the gloom paled a little and I guessed that we must be standing in some coin of the southern transept. It seemed the northern windows opposite us were boarded up. Gazing out, I could detect scaffolding poles like knitting needles thrust out from the walls and a balloon-like spread of canvas above them. For the moment, my ear was haunted by what appeared to be the droning of an immense insect. But this presently ceased. You will understand, sir, breathed the old man, The scaffolding over there was put up when the last gentleman came down from London to inspect the fabric. Now, sir. I strained every sense, and yet I could detect not the faintest murmur under that wide-spreading roof. How long we stayed in this position I cannot say. Minutes sometimes seem like hours. Then suddenly, without the slightest warning, I became aware of a peculiar vibration, It suggested the remote whirring of an enormous millstone. My companion pressed closer. Do you see that, sir? I gazed and gazed, but saw nothing. And then, though I cannot be certain, it seemed that the voluminous spread of canvas perceptibly trembled as if a huge hand had been thrust out to draw it aside. No time was given me to make sure. The old man had hastily withdrawn me into the opening of the wall and we made no pause in our retreat until we had come again to the narrow slit of window. Well, sir, it's so difficult to be sure of oneself. Have you ever actually encountered anything? Near at hand, I mean. Well, yes, sir, in this very gallery. They nearly had me, sir. But by good fortune, there's a recess further on. "'stored up with some old fragments of carving, "'I had had my warning "'and managed to leap in there and conceal myself, "'but only just in time. "'Indeed, sir, I confess, "'I was in such a condition of terror and horror, "'I turned my back. "'You mean you didn't look, but something came. "'Yes, sir, there was a sound like clanging metal, "'but I don't think it was metal.' It drew near at a furious speed, then passed me, making a filthy gust of wind. And no other sound. No other, sir, except in the distance, a noise like a stupendous kind of gibberish. No human sound. The air shook with it. You see, sir, I myself wasn't of any consequence, I take it, unless a mere obstruction. But... I have heard it said that the rarity of these happenings is only because it's not any sort of pleasure for such beings, such apparitions, sir, good or bad, to visit our world. Did he hear anything then, sir? His gentle mumbling ceased, and we listened together. But every ancient edifice has voices and soundings of its own. There was nothing audible I could put a name to, only a faint perpetual whir of grinding— such as, to overstimulated senses, the stablest stones set one on top of the other might make. "'And now, sir,' he continued with a sigh of weariness, "'would you perhaps follow me on to the roof? It is the last visit I make.' We had not far to go. The old man drew open a heavily ironed door at the head of a flight of stairs, and admitted us at once to the leaden roof. The last faint hues of sunset were fading in the west. We edged softly along, to find ourselves now all but tete a tete with the gigantic figures that stood sentinel at the base of the tower. The old man peered cautiously about him as we advanced. Once, with a hasty gesture, he drew me back and fixed his eyes on a figure which was silhouetted against the starry emptiness, a forbidding thing enough. "'viewed in this vague luminosity "'which seemed to be perceptibly stirring "'on its wind-worn pedestal. "'But no. "'All's well,' the old man signalled to me, "'and we pushed on. "'At last we completed our circuit of the tower "'and stood eyeing one another like conspirators. "'Maybe there was a tinge of incredulity on my face. "'No, sir,' murmured the old man. "'I expected no other. "'The night... Is uncommonly quiet. They seem to leave us at peace on nights of quiet. But we must be getting home. The notion of fumbling down again into the blackness was singularly uninviting. To gain a moment's respite, I inquired about getting a bed for the night in the village, and, as I had hoped, the old man himself offered me hospitality. I thanked him, but still hesitated to follow, for I was trying to discover what peculiar effect of darkness a moment before had deceived me into the belief that some small animal, a dog, I guessed, had taken cover behind the stone buttress nearby. But that apparently had been a mere illusion. Nothing stirred now. You were saying, I pressed him, that when repairs at the building were in contemplation, even the experts were perplexed by what they discovered. What did they say? Say, sir, examine that balustrade which you are leaning against. Look at that gnawing and fretting above the lead. All that is honest wear and tear, constant weathering of rain and wind. But now compare it, if you please, with this St. Mark here. I stooped close under the huge grey creature of stone, and I confess I could find not the slightest trace of fret or friction. Far from it. The stone had been grotesquely decorated in low relief with a two-headed crocodile— and the undulations of the creature were cut as sharp as with a knife in cheese. No, cast your glance upwards, sir. Is that what you would call a saintly shape? What I took to represent an eagle was perched on the image's lifted wrist, but lowering and vulture-like. The head of the figure was poised at an angle of defiance. Its whole aspect was undeniably sinister and intimidating. Aye, sir! And so with some of the rest of them, the old man commented. There are other wills than the Almighty's. But one doesn't repair in order to destroy. No, sir, and why not? To give strength for evil purposes. Would that be time wasted if such was your aim? An institution may be beyond dying, sir. It may be being restored... "'for a worse destruction, "'and a hundred trumpeting voices "'would make no difference "'when the faith and life within "'is tottering to its fall. "'Somehow this muddle of metaphors "'reassured me. "'Obviously the old man's wits "'had worn a little thin. "'And yet you are taking it for granted, "'I expostulated, "'that if what you say is true— A stranger could be of the slightest help. The old man laid a trembling hand upon my sleeve. Have patience with me, sir. I could never express the gratitude I feel. You have given me the occasion to unbosom myself, to make a clean breast, as they say. You couldn't help me, except only by your presence here. God alone knows who can. At that instant... "'A dull, enormous rumble reverberated from within the building, "'as if a huge block of stone had been dislodged. "'The flags on which we stood seemed to tremble. "'The fingers tightened on my arm. "'Come, sir, we must be gone at once. "'We have stayed too long.' "'But we emerged into the night at last without mishap. "'The little western door, above which the grinning head "'had welcomed me on my arrival, "'admitted us to terra firma again.' and we made our way up the steep, sandy track. We turned at the summit and looked back. All hallows lay beneath us, resembling some natural prehistoric outcrop of that sea-worn, rock-bound coast, but strangely human and saturnine. But far out to sea, summer lightnings were now in idle play, flickering into the sky like the unfolding of a signal, planet to planet, then gone. That alone may have accounted for the faint vitreous glare that seemed to glitter across the windows of the northern transept. And yet how easily deceived is the imagination! I could have vowed this was no reflection, but the glow of some light shining fitfully from within, outwards. The old man paused beside the gate leading into his garden. You will forgive me, sir, for mentioning it, but I make it a rule to leave all my troubles outside when I come home. My daughter is a widow, and not long in that sad condition, so I keep as happy a face as I can on things. And yet, well, sir, I wonder at times if... if a personal sacrifice isn't incumbent on them that have their object most at heart. I'd go out myself very willingly, sir, if there was any certainty in my mind... "'that it would serve the cause. "'It would be little to me if... "'He made no attempt to complete the sentence. "'On my way to bed that night, "'the old man led me in on tiptoe to show me his grandson. "'I stooped over the child's cot. "'The boy was of that fairness which almost suggests the unreal. "'He had flung back his bedclothes, "'as if innocence in this world needed no covering or defence, "'and lay at ease... "'the dews of sleep on lip, cheek, and forehead. "'The lovely thing,' I muttered. "'Where is he now, I wonder?' "'And from out of the distance "'there came the first prolonged whisper of a wind from over the sea. "'It was eleven by my watch. "'The storm after the heat of the day seemed to be drifting inland, "'but all hallows, apparently, had forgotten to wind its clock.'
7: Richard E. Grant was reading All Hallows by Walter De la Mare. The producer was Lawrence Jackson, and we'll have another ghost story by Walter De la Mare tomorrow about two boys spending a holiday with a sinister aunt, an experience that will mark them forever.
6: This is this is, this is, this is BBC, BBC BBC Radio Four Radio Four Extra.